Smooth and witty, charisma and charm, intimidating and daring, caring and manipulative. On this thirsty bowl of the Dungeons and Gatherers podcast, it's time for us to dive into the tragic, comic, queer, gothic romance of the day. And that's when we joke like we have the, the theme that's music That's our play. intro music. Because it, it sounds, sounds like, like Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah we, just, we just pretend to sing it. That rocks. That's the bit. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Speaking of bits, I'm going to steal this intro and introduce um, our special guest for today, um, Dean Beckwith from Bits Before Crits. Do you see what I did there? Yeah, I am Dean Beckwith. I host and produce the actual play podcast, Bits Before Crits. Uh, We do a bunch of short, usually 10 to 12 episode arcs in different role-playing systems. I also produce theatrical LARPs in New York City, and I am a amateur game designer. So I don't know how much we can go into that, but I'll try to answer your questions. Oh, don't you worry. We're going to take a dive into that. And I also just wanted to say, because I'm like a huge fangirl for Dean in general, and the LARPs are amazing, and if you want to hear like... Honestly, people doing the Powered by Apocalypse system really, really well. Bits Before Crits is so freaking good. Like, I was obsessing over 7th C. Before I met Dean, I was like, oh my god, you're you're that character from the 7th C podcast. I, <laughs> I'm such a big fan. We've been talking about since uh, Avatar Legends is coming out very yes. soon, and the playtest material is already out. We already had a little conversation about it, actually. But, like, we wanted to have someone on in general, because, like, Powered by the Apocalypse is, like coming into our brains now because we're like oh this is a cool dice system with a lot of cool things in it and we know that we talk about like D can be clunky at times combat is slow it's not necessarily built for the um, role play to be at the spearhead of it and before we dive into what you have created i just wanted to ask a general question since aaron and i are newer to powered by the apocalypse what do you recommend to the D players like a good way to get into Powered by the Apocalypse. Yeah, so just a quick clarifier if if people aren't familiar with it. So Powered by the Apocalypse, uh, it's not quite a dice system like D20. Uh, It's more a sort of set of design principles um, developed by McGay Baker and Vincent Baker. Uh, So it comes from this game Apocalypse World, which is a like sexy Mad Max simulator that dropped in 2010. And it's so attractive because it's a very flexible and rules light framework, but uh, the rules are tightly tied to like different types of narratives. Uh, So you have games like Noir World, which are meant to tell a story in the genre of Noir. I mean, as far as the strongest ones in the genre, I think Monster Hearts is really good, uh, which, again, is trying to emulate the teen romance of, like, Twilight or um, any of those uh, sort of copycat television shows uh, that dropped around that period. Monster Hearts is super simple, uh, as is Masks, which is meant to be, like, Teen Titans the game. And both of them really reflect, like when you look at masks, it's not, you think, oh, it's a superhero game. The very first thing I'm going to do is pick my powers. I want to know if I'm a 
flying, super strong Superman type or a Transformer Beast Boy type. No. The very first thing you figure out is what's your position in your team. And not tank healer, but, oh, I'm the Robin. I'm the one who's always trying to uphold justice, who's kind of binding the team together. Or, no, I'm the Starfire. I am kind of an alien, or literally an alien, who is trying to integrate and, like, understand this society while doing good things. So I, I would recommend Masks or Monster Hearts, for sure. Definitely. And you speak of hearts right now, mm -hmm. and I think that's a perfect segue into a tragicomic queer gothic romance. Now that we have a little idea for those who aren't familiar with the um, Powered by the Apocalypse system, you have created a game using this dice system called Thirst at the Cathedral. And when people ask me, because I, I talk about it sometimes, because I'm like, this is a really cool game. Is there an exclamation point after Thirst? There is an exclamation it's, it's point. Just like th Panic at the Disco. Yeah, the, the game was actually, the title was taken from the, there's some bot on Twitter that does Noun at the Noun, which is always, oh. it's just a Panic at the Disco derivative. Mm -hmm. um, and one day uh, it did Thirst at the Cathedral, and one of our listeners tagged us and was like, wow, this sounds like a Bits Before Crit season. And I just shot off a quick joke Kickstarter pitch where I was like, oh, it's uh, going to be a queer reworking of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I shot off that tweet in like 30 seconds, and then I couldn't stop thinking about it for the next two weeks. <laughs> oh my Which, god wait way, so that's, that's how it Josh happened had to tell me to sell me on this podcast episode he was like what if we had this guy on my friend dean he's writing this game that's like a, a queer gothic romance based on the hunchback of notre dame and i was like i'm done let's go yeah it it is a very sexy concept i don't think i've told anyone about it and gotten a neutral response I just I want to I want to delve right in. My absolute favorite thing is that one of your stats is how hot you are, and that will be my highest stat every time. <laughs> I, I demand it. So the stats are hot, cool, fierce, and warm, which are sort of personality traits, right? And how you deal with other characters. And one of my major concerns early in the design was like, well, why wouldn't you just want to max out hot every time? Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. mm, that's a good point. But uh, sort of thankfully, because you have characters like the Righteous, who's the Claude Frollo character, or like the Disfigured, who is the Hunchback character, people really get to lean into, oh no, I'm not a hot character, but I'm super horny for the hot characters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which we love that. That's good. Yes. Because as long as as long as the sexual drive is still there, that's all that uh, <laughs> the characters, needs to be covered. I think there's one thing you can never divorce from a role-playing game, and it's that the players will be horny. Like, every single time. Mm -hmm. That's just what happens. Yeah, some of my frustration with traditional role-playing games is I will just want Sexual to be horny. Frustration. Yes, yeah. and, and uh, you know, just flirt with an NPC for a long period of time. But, oh, no, the GM has to bring in some monster that I have to fight. And so this, I think playing Monster Hearts was one of the first times that I realized, oh, you can have a game that's just about being horny and queer and confused. It's been 31 episodes. We're still talking about fucking dragons. 
Yes. <laughs> it never goes away. That was the theme of the whole podcast. We literally, <laughs> we literally can't escape it. Yeah. And in a world of fantasy, you know, I mean, if we're going to sit down and pretend we're things, um, mm-hmm. we might as well uh, play with uh, something that's such a core aspect of ourselves. Totally. It's like such a safe space. It can be such a safe space at, a, at the table to like, to explore experiences that are outside of your own, you know? Yeah, I playtested Thirst with, uh, at the Magpie Games Design Festival. Magpie are the folks who are coming out with the Avatar RPG. Mm -hmm. And I I keep thinking back on, like, one of my role players, he was an old-school roleplay guy, like D&D First Edition and all the current old-school games that are coming out meant to mimic that late 70s, early 80s mm-hmm. game style. And he was also super straight, um, late middle-aged, and was like, I didn't know what to expect when I came into this. Like, I really thought this was going to be this queer fantasia that I wouldn't be able to connect with at all. But I had so much fun getting hit on by other characters and then saying yes to that. Because that's not something that happens to him in role play. You know, he's he's not used to other characters coming up to him and trying to flirt with you. But when mm-hmm. someone flirts with you, you want to flirt back. Yeah, definitely. Naturally. It's only the yes and interaction of uh, love within a role playing game. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's important that it's built into the structure of the game. You know, like I think part of the reason that people might shy away from that in D and D is that there's there's not mechanics for it. You know, it's not something that the game is supposed to be about. But here, it's like that's the point. Like you get permission to to do that because you have because you talk about it in in the rules. Yeah, as soon as there's a mechanical basis, and he looks and says, "Oh, if I hit on other people, I can get strings on them." which allows mm-hmm. me to influence their behavior in the future. Which I think is so cool. Um, I love to play emotionally manipulative characters um, or characters that just like know information or have dirt on people. And to have the string mechanic be baked in that then I can have an actual mechanical advantage because of the information my character knows, I think is awesome. The Righteous is a perfect playbook for that specifically. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, people might be hearing uh, The Righteous and The Disfigured and be wondering, oh, is that like the cleric class that you're playing then? And we brought it up earlier with, you know, with masks that you're not playing the flying character or the uh, character that shoots beams out of their hands. I think it's really cool that in your system you have character creation through the personality rather than the class. And I wanted to ask you, what was the real decision behind making that the case, rather than being like, oh, the Righteous is the cleric, and the Galliant is the um, the fighter within this game? Yeah, I think it's part of this powered by the Apocalypse tradition, because in the very first one, the classes are more differentiated by what they can do. Like Apocalypse World, you have the driver, the person who's good at driving. You have the battle babe who's good at fighting and gets higher armor the less clothing they're wearing yeah Um, (laughs) it's awesome but i think the the real brilliance of that game that why people latched onto it and kept building hacks of it initially and then uh, frameworks based on the system is that well exactly what i mentioned the battle babe gets more armor the less that they are wearing 
And that's meant to simulate a narrative trope, which is the characters wearing next to nothing who are like dodging bullets. It's meant to create a certain type of like action hero that we would recognize from film or television. And I'm drawing from that tradition heavily. Specifically, um, the strings are drawn from monster hearts where, yeah, you pick whether you're the werewolf or the vampire or the ghost. Those do come with certain supernatural abilities. The ghost's abilities are all based around being that kind of teenager who blends into the background, who <laughs> nobody notices. The Sorry, I love this concept. <laughs> yeah, the vampire is the manipulator, the person who is cold and never lets anyone close, but uh, is surrounded by an army of simps and is just trying to control school politics. The werewolf is the person with anger issues, um, but who is like probably kind of sexy because of it. <laughs> yeah, um, everyone is hot. <laughs> Yes, everyone is hot. But for this game, I'm looking at the narrative tropes of a much tighter genre, which is sort of French romance involving disfigured characters. So mm -hmm. sitting between Hunchback of Notre Dame and the Phantom of the Opera. So you have uh, the disfigured who has abilities to like climb throughout the cathedral and pass through hidden passageways, appear suddenly, like both the Hunchback and the Phantom do. But it's a playbook that's more about uh, not liking the way your body looks and um, having to use tenderness and uh, other ways of getting into other people's relationships, of establishing relationships with people other than pure physical attraction. Whereas The Righteous, again, is all about being in a position of power, uh, but nobody really would spend any time with you if you weren't in that position of power. Yeah, and honestly, what I love, too, about it is, like, I'm looking at the disfigured right now, and at the character creation block, just the questions that you give, like, the first four things, like, it's already putting in my mind, like, how does this character act? And rather than it being like, oh, I want to play a rogue, none of that deep character stuff is there when you're going to play this disfigured character. And I think it's just so brilliant that what you give in this system immediately gets people starting like, okay, this is how I act, and these are the things about my character. And I just think that's so amazing, coming from someone who's so used to D&D, &D, where it's like, I'm going to play the cleric. What is the cleric like? Uh, the heel? Yeah, and it's it's interesting because so you're at looking at the questions um, that are uh, like you choose your look, you choose your eyes. Is that what you're referencing? Which also, if I could just say, coming from a D and D perspective, I think now on D and D character sheets, instead of doing color for eyes, I think I'm going to start doing what you have here and putting down something like wide or inquisitive because that's just so much more juicy. That's something I like. I. I take the descriptor part of a character sheet and I sort of make a joke out of it. So I don't give like real information, but I'll say like, 
like beautiful eyes or like for my last character he was like a little hefty but instead of giving a weight in pounds i just wrote little tummy and yes. that was like much more fun than saying like he weighs yeah, 98 pounds yes and that's it's so much more descriptive of the narrative what people mm-hmm. i think most people who sit down to play role-playing games um who aren't sitting down to play an old school one where your weight matters because you're gonna say oh mm-hmm. only 150 someone pounds might will trigger you this up. trap Yes, yeah, is to have a sense of this these people in your head. So, um, and especially for a game like mine, which is all about being attracted to the characters, you look at the gallant, who is the uh, the captain character, and your options are dashing, jacked, suave, <laughs> husky. Mm. Each of these is a different type of body, each of which can be uh, very attractive in its own uh respect brown eyes brown hair doesn't tell me anything about what they look like Mm -hmm. um unless you're dealing with the anime tropes where if i i know that a green-haired girl will be the nerd i know that the red-haired boy will be the shonen protagonist the the one with pink hair is the main character (laughs) yeah and also i was about to say you must know all the anime tropes after doing your magical girl series you have to have those on lock yeah and i'll actually say that tied into this a lot so we did a 13 episode arc about magical girls using a wonderful system by aaron clooney uh magical fury and the process of creating those characters on the podcast was all about the narrative archetypes they fit into so our player who's a phenomenal improviser uh stephanie ward fleshed out these how in any magical girls team it's not even about the powers it's about sailor mars is the haughty one with an attitude who comes from a traditional family uh sailor mercury is the nerd um who solves problems with her mind sailor moon is the heart uh she's probably dumber and probably weaker than all her friends but she loves and supports them and ties the whole team together and the process of creating those characters on pod really drove home how the narrative tropes to me are so much more interesting in terms of building a balanced party than building a balanced party via uh, mechanical elements but i think of it in very much the same way where you need um, and I think this applies even if you're building a D&D party, if you want a sort of fun narrative experience, you need the leader. You need the person who's tying things together, the Sailor Moon type. And uh, you probably also want the Prince Zuko type, the person who's pulled into the group who is an outsider and uh, only agrees with like some of what the group wants to do. And that producing that narrative tension is is super interesting and it can serve as a guide for in my experience and i've done this it's less interesting if you play a team of characters who are oops all prince zukos if everyone's an edgelord with a troubled past you're not going to get the same narrative frisian than if you have different characters portraying really uh, radically different narrative tropes yeah, I think one of the things that's occurring to me as as we're talking about all of this and all these different roles is that I didn't realize that people didn't play D&D like this. 
you know, maybe I've just been spoiled because Josh is such a wonderful DM and we have such a wonderful group that we all fill these roles inherently when we go through character creation. You know, like looking at our, our home campaign, like I think I play like the shy nerd who solves problems, you know, intellectually or like who is just like very aware of her surroundings versus Zoe probably plays like sort of a battle babe kind of like very charismatic i'll use my personality to to like you know get what i want and then hadrian's sort of like a stoic leader type who's like going to take charge in a lot of social interactions in like a much more professional way and then snorri's like snorri's the heart right yes snorri's our sailor moon that like makes us all be a team and makes us all work together a little silly dwarvish barbarian who just makes people smile. And yeah. I, I had a conversation with Dean about this, I think, uh, maybe like a month or two ago, that I my heart is like I am the person who fell in love with like the wrong girl, I sometimes say. Like, I love D&D. My heart is always with D&D. <laughs> but a huge struggle for me is constantly, whenever I do a one-shot or whatever it is, is to push a lot of the clunkiness of D&D out of the way and make it more like these systems. And I think I sometimes look like someone with two heads because it's like, why not just play the other system? I think I'm just stuck on D&D sometimes. But when I was talking to you about it, Dean, I realized that, like, dang, there are a lot of people that play D&D very, like, all right, hit, okay, where's the next fight? Yeah, and even people who have richly constructed characters don't necessarily get the time to explore them unless the GM explicitly mm-hmm. makes the space. Because right, definitely. There's, if there's no rules around it, you have to tack it on top. When you have rules for social conflict beyond simple tests, but sort of a, a rich rules for determining how characters can manipulate each other, like the conditions in masks or the upcoming avatar rpg or strings in monster hearts or thirst at the cathedral then people who don't know what to do look at their sheet and they say oh well i can do this thing and it immediately triggers uh the sort of social improvisation scene that you're interested in and I think that definitely also comes from it's the difference between uh, let's say uh, I'm looking at the moves that the disfigured has one is uh, cute when sad uh, when you have forlorn mark take plus one to inflame rather than in D&D you have a fighting style and a way to regain hit points and a different kind of attack it's just so ingrained in D&D that everything is like I am not built as, like, a baker. Mm -hmm. I am built as a warrior. And that is where, like, my brain is immediately going to go. And we've seen Mm -hmm. a recent change in D&D with uh, Beyond the Witchlight. They're doing, like, non-combat stuff. But still, you're building characters that can murder. Right, that primarily have combat abilities. And that's what's going to come out more because what I love about everything with the Cathedral and other stuff with Advancement, the big cut in D&D is that usually advancements are treated as when you kill things and that has always been like the backbone to D&D is like I killed the dragon it's time to level up it's not I had this really romantic scene with a village person who likes to pick flowers I don't level up from that yeah and the advancements in Thirst of the Cathedral are designed to be 
sort of changes in your personality. So like you could, as you level up, pick pining for love, which means now you become, um, you have a heavy crush on one character. And whenever you are directly pursuing them, you take a plus one every time you roll, which plus one is Huge. really big deal in PBTA. Uh, <laughs> uh, it may not sound like it for people familiar with D20, but plus one is the highest you can get is a plus three. So plus one is pretty substantial. Yeah. But it changes your personality. You have something that is, gives you a mechanical bonus, um, but it's specifically, oh, I had this scene with this person. Now I'm down bad. <laughs> And I'm choosing an upgrade specifically to pursue them. Mm -hmm. And I, actually, I wanted to jump back for a moment because you're talking about how a lot of these tropes are things that people fall into naturally. I think Aaron really went into how your group falls into these tropes naturally. And I think that's true for most sort of solid role-playing groups or anyone with sort of improv background. But the thing that's most been most interesting for me playtesting this, because uh, I've been playtesting it with my regular role-playing group, is, well, for each playtest, people are having to take different parts. And the most interesting ones for me are when people who are so used to playing one trope play another. I have this one player, Nick Mayfield, who is always the clown, always the goofy character. And watching him play the disfigured, who's this sort of heartbroken outsider of society, it was it both changed my understanding of what was possible for him as a player and also changed my understanding of what was possible with the disfigured because he necessarily injected humor and sort of clever moments into that narrative trope. Our heavy wounded edgelord character uh, player came in and played the outcast who's the Esmeralda. Mm -hmm. And again, it was very cool to see the the intersection between two radically different play styles. And I think it created a new, a new sense of understanding what's possible for the himbo. Yeah, I, as you're thinking about it, I was like realizing the sort of tropes that I fall into with, a, which is usually like a very capable weirdo, right? Someone who like is sort of on the outskirts, but is incredibly talented. Um, and like, what would it be like if I played the disfigured, you know? Cause naturally I also wanna tend towards the outcast, someone who like may live on the outsides of society, but is very capable and is like pretty sexy. Mm -hmm. But like if I were to play, you know, a character that didn't get to have those abilities, like it was a very emotional experience for me right now, just to think about playing that. And um, that seems really cool. And like just a very potent, an enriching role playing experience for me. Well, which to is be scary. honest, then you might want to you might want to write that down because if we're play testing this, you're definitely going to be a player in it, Aaron, and we want the juicy. We want the juicy. We want the character. juice. Actually, if I could ask, because since I uh, I fall to be the DM for my play group all the time, Aaron, is that probably what you would do if you were to play in Thirst at the Cathedral? It's hard to say. Um, I'm thinking I would either be that or. Yeah, no, I'll do a, a hard, 
You heard it here first, folks. I'm gonna play the disfigured. Ugh. Ooh, I, what if right. I hate it though? Like, what's the? What if it's not good? You know, like some, like I think about D and D. Like some people don't like to play characters that cast spells. You know, just like in a very different mm-hmm. analogy, right? And like don't have a fun time when they have to worry about spells. Hmm. Like, are there? Have you had experiences with people that are like, I picked this role and I played it out, and it was it was hard. Is there that same sort of like? I just don't like to play fighters, you know? Does that exist here? Yeah, I would say, well, it's the beauty of this game is it's much shorter. It's designed for one shots or like two shots. Lovely. So there's not a lot of pressure when it comes to picking the quote unquote wrong role. But I know that a player who usually plays supporting classes played the Righteous. And I know she had a lot of difficulty early on because the abilities are based on being mean, based on mm-hmm. manipulating Ooh. other people. Yeah. And she's so used to being not only the emotional heart of the party, but like the mechanical heart, healing people, defending people. But I think she really enjoyed by the end of her arc becoming increasingly evil and jaded because she tried to play initially the way she was used to, using hot and warm but she didn't have high, hot, and warm stats. So mm. she would reach out and try to like connect with someone and she'd roll an utter failure and the person would reject her. And so you saw her becoming cold and jaded and then as a result, manipulating people in other ways. So it, it was a very satisfying um, narrative arc for her. And then just a, a mechanical question, the way that the story plays out, is, does it often end up being that the righteous character is the antagonist? Is that usually how it plays? In early playtests, yes. The mm-hmm. righteous Claude Frollo often became the antagonist, and that has not always been the case. Like, I've definitely seen a disfigured antagonist. Like Phantom of the Opera. Yes, exactly. And I've seen a gallant antagonist as well, where oh, cool. she was just this like girl boss police chief uh, who was, <laughs> it, oh, it was incredible. Actually, that's the one that's on our um, <laughs> uh, on our podcast. Oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, um, where Scarlet was just. I knew it. I freaking yes. knew it was Scarlet. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that that filled out. Yeah. Yeah, I, she introduced her character by saying, um, as you walk down the alley, you hear, uh, well, you. I think she was like, you hear the whimpers of some bottom uh, <gasps> as she was uh, uh, stepping on someone. Um, anyway, it's it's a horny game. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, I think right now because people, especially when you tell people like we're doing Hunchback of Notre Dame or we're doing Phantom, people gravitate mm-hmm. towards those tropes. But it's definitely not necessary. And I've been trying with each draft to make the mechanics themselves push away from that. I think the first draft had the righteous being like more explicitly evil, whereas I think the righteous could definitely be played more as a matriarch figure who is manipulating people for their own good, a sort of a witchy character. But that's a great question. I really want to see a fool king antagonist. I like the idea of like like a like a sect of rebels, you know, that are trying to depose the city. 
you know, because that's one of his, uh, his, I don't know, gender's weird. That's one of the Fool King's abilities um, that, like, if they roll high enough, they can incite a mob. And I think that's awesome. And it gives you a lot of great... I'm also, like, showing my hand because I DM our Ravnica arc right now. And, like, maybe, this, you know, the city will have an uprising. Who's to say? <laughs> oh, no. I, I'll tell you, my Boros Knight that's about law and fighting might not be totally for that idea. But No, I I mean, the, the uprising would oppose you. Naturally. Oh, good. Okay, then perfect. Then I guess that, yes, they are the antagonist. Well done, Zizia Boros Knight. You're playing right into <laughs> your character. And I'm also happy to hear uh, you say this as well, Dean, because I know for a fact when immediately I read this, I was like, Hunchback in Notre Dame, great. Who's Quasimodo? Who's Esmeralda? Who's Frollo? We're going to play it just like, you know, Frollo's the bad guy. But I'm happy that it's more open than that. It doesn't have to fall into, well, Frollo, he sings Hellfire. He's the bad guy. And I will say, even though the Righteous has often become the antagonist, they are a much more lovable antagonist than Claude Frollo or sympathetic antagonist hmm. because usually the way it's played is the righteous uh, has often been like a closeted character, a character who has deep sexual and or romantic yearnings that they repress and which is what Claude Frollo does anyway, hmm. but seeing being able to see someone play with that more directly and especially in an explicitly queer way, it makes them more sympathetic. Yeah. Well, that tugs on the heartstrings. Okay. I love this. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to cry when I play this game. I feel like I'm going to need, like, a big decompression session afterwards with, like, you know, stuffed animals and, like, laying on the ground. We'll play my volleyball one shot after we finish this. Oh, good. Because that'll, that'll yeah. turn it right around. We're going to have to get Petraea, though, to play... Uh, a water elemental again because that was way too fun to have in that but um what i want to ask you dean is that i am planning on dming this and it's really my first time ever dming something within this system what is your advice to new dms that are picking up thirst at the cathedral what are what are your like big tips as a grandmaster creator of this game i well i mean the experience of gming Powered by the Apocalypse is radically different from the experience of uh, DMing Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons because so much develops in real time rather than is prepared. So if you're doing this as a one shot, you have room to prep maybe one or two NPCs. Uh, but because so many of the characters goals and desires revolve around other player characters you aren't the center of attention like mm. your goal often in thirst is to sit back and watch the fireworks and take notes on like ooh this character uh, made clear they're interested in the other character but that hasn't been made explicit yet. I'm going to make sure to make that explicit when uh, they, the next time they encounter one of my NPCs or um, it, it is much more, I think the experience of being a, a, a director rather than a writer where you are watching stuff in real time and sort of tweaking it rather than 
preparing. It's very um, seat of your pants, but I don't want to scare people away from it because I think a lot of the work that you would normally have to do with providing antagonists is done for you by the characters, by the player characters, because they are they're actively poking at each other. And uh, it's not just them improvising dialogue around a campfire. They have real mechanical ways to attack each other emotionally. If I had one piece of advice, I would say maybe play the Avatar RPG first. I think that Magpie has done like a really great job at bridging the gap between more traditional role-playing and Powered by the Apocalypse. Like, I strongly believe this upcoming Avatar RPG is going to make PBTA mainstream and also with it paying a great deal of attention to combat, but also having the core be about the emotional relationship between the team members. And because of the brilliant writers they have on staff, I think it's probably going to be like baby's first PBTA. Mm -hmm. It seems like a great way to wean people off of the sort of like need for physical challenges and like combat solutions. And also it's like making me put on like putting away my D&D hat and actually it's giving me like my fiasco hat right now. I'm thinking a lot about fiasco as I as I'm reading through this. Yes, it is very fiasco. I think it's um, PVTA, especially the emotional based ones, scratch the itch of fiasco, but have a much tighter mechanical structure Mm. to like hold you to it. Definitely. Because fiasco is like very 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 seat of your pants where it's just like that okay is, there's it's all improv it's terrifying yeah but damn i love it and dean i just want to say thank you so much for coming on and talking about thirst because you are getting aaron i hopefully I speak for aaron and myself that we are very excited about this game and i yes. hope that you will be the fly on the wall when we run it because i would like to have someone in my corner being like oh my god this is so new to me still yeah no i look forward to seeing it right now we've done all the play testing in-house but we have a few groups like yours that are going to be running it and i'm terrified because you know everything right now relies upon my own assumptions as a mm. gm And, um, of course, the phenomenal team of improvisers that I've been working with for three years on Bits Before Crits. So, uh, yeah, I'm very curious to see that. Uh, If your listeners are interested in playtesting Thirst of the Cathedral, though, uh, they can jump in the Bits Before Crits Discord, and I will provide the current playtest documents. 100%. We will put that in our episode description for all of you who are interested, and also just in general, Please listen to Bits Before Crits, because Aaron and I were talking on the Avatar Legends podcast. The group that we were watching for, like, our feedback were like, they're not that fun. Like, it's not really enjoyable to watch them. Like, Bits Before Crits does a great job just being super fun and enjoyable. It is just like watching a movie. So, please listen to them. They're great. Yeah, and we have, it's just a two-episode arc of Thirst of the Cathedral. So, two episodes, two hours, pretty straightforward, and I definitely do a better job on those episodes explaining the rules in detail than I did just now. So if you want a real sense of it, you can check that out. Well, thank you so much again for being on, Dean. And all that I can say is that 
Oh, wow. Damn it. I had the outro and I lost it. Hang on. Wait, <laughs> no. wait, wait. It's coming back. Okay. Uh, uh, um, uh, what I'd give, what I dare, just to live one day out there where you can like and subscribe to the Dungeons and Gatherers podcast. You don't have to look at it from the top of a tower. It's right there. Just hit that button. Thank oh, you guys man. for listening. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. Thank this has been so fun. Much.